Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Chris. Now, I know that fans of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast have been clamoring for some new content. Well, ladies and gentlemen, be careful what you wish for, because Jalo Chow Chow episode nine has clocked in at four hours and 40 minutes long. Dun, dun, dun. Now, uh, this extended length is due to the inclusion of our guest host, longtime friend of the show, Al Owens. Al and I spend a good deal of time talking about his background, his history with the Jalo film genre, his opinions about my website, the Jalo score. And we also spend an extended amount of time discussing the history and the production credits for our featured Jalo, Naked You Die. By the time we finally get started with the scene-by-scene analysis, the podcast has already been running for 90 minutes. So, in an effort to make digesting this episode more manageable for you, I've split the podcast into two parts, with the introduction and the background as part one, and the scene-by-scene as part two. Those of you who don't like scene-by-scene can simply skip over it and feel confident that you still have a thoroughly satisfying episode without it. Uh, But seriously, I do hope that you listen to all of it. You know, Al and I had a lot of fun obsessing over the details of this film, and I hope to have him back for the next episode. And hey, if we could get Matt back as well, we could push the next episode's running time past the six-hour mark. (laughs) Anyway, hope you all enjoy the episode. Feel free to get in touch with us through the podcast group on Facebook or send an email to jollochowchow at gmail.com. All right, cue the intro. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice.
Chow Chow, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode. I always say very special episode. Another exciting episode. How about that? Of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. Uh, I hope I did that justice, Matt. Uh, he's not with us today, everybody. Uh, it, today is Matt's birthday, and Matt is celebrating his birthday in Las Vegas, as far as I know, as far as he's told us. Um, so cheers, buddy. I hope you made it out to the Pinball Hall of Fame, because I know that's your favorite place to go in Las Vegas. Um, but lucky for you all, I am not alone today. Joining me on the podcast for the first time, all the way from Italy, is the longtime friend of the show, Al Owens. Ciao, Al. Welcome to the show. Ciao, ciao, everybody. Uh, this is Al calling from Italy. As they say, long-time listener, first-time caller. And I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, so Matt and I, um, I think, first started communicating with Al through the Facebook group. Um, he sent us some emails and whatnot. And he became our official Italian correspondent because uh, he provides much-needed perspective. Um, because uh, Matt and I really, really don't have that here in America. You know, we just watch these films and we think stuff we see in some of these films is really weird. Why are they doing that? And so um, Al was happy to be the first person to say, uh, well, this is why. So, so Al, um, you've listened to the show for a long time. Um, now you're participating. I think the first thing that comes to mind is how did you discover the podcast and um, what made you want to <laughs> keep listening to it? I discovered podcasts in general off of reading a uh, a thread on a guitar forum where people were talking about uh, podcasts to listen to. And that led me to the, the Dan Carlin Hardcore History podcast. And there was one of his episodes where he mentioned that nowadays they have podcasts for everything. And as an example, he used the fact that if you wanted to, there is a podcast dedicated to... Uh, making horseshoes and putting horseshoes on horses as you know as a niche 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 thing to have a podcast about around that same time i had just moved back to italy and was uh, kind of rediscovering these jolly from the 70s and 80s on italian tv and just on a whim i uh, googled I, I forget which jolly it was into well i didn't google it i searched for it in my podcast app and jollo chow chow popped up and i think at that point there had only been maybe 10 episodes so i just started from the beginning and started listening my way through uh until i finally you know felt the desire to send you guys an email and express <laughs> my appreciation for uh the fact that you know since i've been watching these from middle school age, I'd never really had anybody to discuss them with. Even my cousins right. at the time, they didn't want to talk about them. They just wanted to watch the fun parts and go do something else, you know? Right. <laughs> and once I moved back to the States when I was 15, uh, you know, 1985 in the D.C. area of uh, the United States, nobody knew what I was talking about. They didn't right. know, you know, the, you know, they were talking about... Uh, you know, Heather Locklear and Phoebe Cates, and they didn't know anything <laughs> about Edwige Fenech or Barbara Boucher. 
So um, there was no way to discuss it with anybody. And your podcast was, you know, just three guys sitting around talking about these movies. And I just kind of latched onto that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's it's funny you mentioned that because um, the fact that I've been involved with the podcast for as long as I have has really kind of pulled me away from the idea that I'm very alone in my hobby of watching these films and being interested in pulling them apart mm-hmm. um, because there isn't anyone in my immediate vicinity that I know of um, who cares, you know, one iota about these right. films. Like I've, I've tried to introduce some of my friends to them, um, various girlfriends and wives, uh, well, one wife, but various, various significant others. Uh, I've tried, uh, watching these films with, and it's just, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like you said, the beauty of, uh, the internet. It's like all, all of the people that have nobody else to talk to get together and now they, Somebody to talk right. To. No matter so, what you're into, nobody has to feel alone anymore because you right, can find right. everything somewhere on the internet. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so no, that's awesome, man. So, you know, we, um, we did a lot of episodes and I don't remember, and maybe if we get Matt on here again, uh, we'll be able to ask him when the Facebook group was a thing, because I don't know if the podcast was launched and the Facebook group was launched at the same time, or if, you know, Matt and Eric did a couple of episodes and, and then got some traction and then decided to spread out a little bit more on the social media. But um, by the time I was involved in the podcast, <clears throat> the Facebook group had already been there. So, yeah, I, I don't remember. I went back uh, at some point during the quarantine. Uh, I went back and started listening back through the old episodes from the beginning. And I do remember that there was some point where somebody was kind of chastising the other one, whether it was Eric to creep or back and (laughs) forth about getting the Facebook page set up. Oh, okay. (laughs) But I don't remember which episode that was, or if that was before or after I'd started listening. Uh, I do know that once the pod, the, uh, the Facebook group, got started i did get a few friend requests from people who only knew me from my emails to the podcast oh okay. I thought that was awesome. pretty cool and people thanking me for what i'm doing for chow chow and i'm like what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> i'm answering a question every two months you know wow well you're more famous than you than you let on yeah. then, so that's yeah. good <laughs> okay So people know Al, and uh, I'm glad to have him here. Um, we're going to uh, do a deep dive into Antonio Margariti's uh, Naked You Die, also known as The Young, The Evil, and The Savage. But first, I just wanted to give everybody an update. Um, in case you were not aware, uh, and those of you on the Facebook group um, probably saw the post, but people outside of the Facebook group... Um, there was a, a website that I had started back in 2012 called uh, The Jalo Score, 
and it lived uh, online for quite a while. Um, and then it went down for a little while. Um, it went down because I just didn't give a shit about it. <laughs> and uh, other things happened in my world and in my life. And I ended up um, just letting the hosting contract and the domain name just completely expire. Um, the good news was that I had a copy of the site and I had a copy of all the data. But someone went in and bought jaloscore.com, the domain, and hosted some weird, like, foreign porn on it at some point. But um, <laughs> if you go there now, it's just a, a dead domain name that doesn't go anywhere. So, um, you know, and I've already talked about this at great length in episode eight, so I won't go into it again. But um, I got the the urge to start the site back up again um, back in... The summer of last year um, and went on a Jallo craze and watched like, you know, 20 films uh, over, you know, a, a month period and, and decided to rebuild the site in a new web development technology. And um, long story short, uh, I did re-release the site. It is now found at the jalloscore.com instead of jalloscore.com. So I had to re-register a domain and put the word the in the front of it. Um, I'm, I have a little bit of OCD with my website. So if you go to it, it says jalloscore.com, but that's a graphic that I haven't been able to find the source files for, uh, in Photoshop. So I can't make the change to it and add the word the to it. And I like the logo the way it is. And so I'm leaving it, but, um, otherwise everywhere else on the website now, I think, it references the word the in the, in the front uh, of the name of the website now. But at any rate, I'm getting way too far into the details. I rebuilt the site. I relaunched it probably a few weeks ago and I did some pruning of the reviews that are on the site. And for a couple of reasons, the first one was, um, and I'm still in, you know, I'm still in the midst of pruning, believe me. Um, some of the reviews that I wrote when I first launched the site were kind of simple. Um, to be honest, I don't, I certainly know 10 times more about Jalo films and the Italian film history of that time period in general, uh, than I did back when I launched the site. Um, and that came from obviously doing this podcast over the last bunch of years, um, but, uh, so some of the oldest reviews, I think like some of the first ones I did were bird with the crystal plumage and who, who saw her die. And, uh, what have you done to Solange? They're not really well-written as far as my, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, I will be reviewing, uh, I will be revisiting them and probably editing them or maybe even rewriting them. Um, but also there's some films that were on the original version of the Jalo score that I added because we um, we covered them on the podcast, but they weren't actually Jolly. They were like uh, pieces, uh, which I think is like a Spanish slasher from the 80s. Um, I think we did uh, Happy Birthday to Me, which is an American slasher. We did uh, Frenzy, which is a Hitchcock film. Um, and then we did a couple of Neo Jolly, like uh, Strange... Uh, whatever the hell it was called, strange body tears, something like that. Strange uh, color of your body's strange, tears. No, strange yeah, there color. You go. I think strange that's right. Strange color of your body's tears. 
Yeah, that sounds okay. right. So I, I took those off, um, not because I don't want them on the site, but really just because I wanted to kind of condense the site down to um, the three main periods of Jalo films. So the proto period from 63 to 70, the classic period from 70 to 75, and then um, whatever you want to call the period after the classic period, the late period Jalo, the silver age, I don't know, if, whatever, um, but basically from 75 to, uh, I guess the, everybody has a different opinion, but I kind of think that opera, I think Argento's opera is kind of like the last um Jalo, or maybe you could even go back and say it's Tenebrae, and after Tenebrae it was it was over, um, and then the Neo period eventually began in the two thousands. Um, but anyway, my point is, uh, I did replace those spots with a bunch of new films that I had watched and reviewed, and Naked You Die is one of them. Um, but uh, t- just to let everybody know that the site's there, I hope everybody um, gets a chance to go to it, check it out. Um, give me your feedback. Uh, there's an email address on the website. I don't have a comments thing on the website anymore because it's just a pain in the ass to, (laughs) to maintain. Um, but there is an email address there if anybody has any thoughts on the website. Um, and the idea, one of the ideas for why I decided to, uh, re-release this or put this back out is that, you know, Matt, suggested to me, hey, why don't you turn the Jalo score into a book? Um, and, you know, like a digital one, obviously, would be easy enough to put together and turn, you know, put a format out, you know, like just take the format from the website and uh, turn it into something that would be like an e-reader type format. Um, and I'm still thinking about the idea. I kind of like the fact that it's a website more than I like the idea of it being a book. But I wanted to ask you, Al, because... Um, I've we've never talked about this before and um cuz Matt and I have obviously talked about the idea of the Jalo score over and over and over again mm-hmm. um and we've we've pulled it apart a million different ways and sometimes when I think about it I say it's a dumb idea and sometimes when I think about it I say I love the idea so not necessarily just the book, but just the whole idea of scoring them and putting numbers to them based on criteria. Um, how how does that strike you in general? Like, first of all, is the Jalo score – two questions and then I'll stop talking. Okay. Uh, is the Jalo score in, as a general idea an interesting one? And B, um, would a book – of let's say 200 film reviews related to the Jalo score be something interesting also. Okay. First of all, I think that the idea of having something like a Jalo score to determine how Jalo is this film is a pretty good idea because time and again, I find movies that absolutely are not jolly being thrown into that subgenre. Uh, for example, Suspiria. It, right. I mean, there is a mysterious element to it. You know, what the hell's going on in this dance school? But the supernatural element kind of takes it away from being a giallo for me. Okay. And a, a lot of Italians uh, on different websites I've been to kind of feel the same way. 
there are still a lot of Italians that would still call it a giallo. I notice very often anybody, well, some people consider any Italian horror film from the 70s a giallo, you know. And, like, for example, Alfred Hitchcock. You know, people look at Frenzy and say, okay, this was Hitchcock teaching those Italian whippersnappers how to do a giallo. <laughs> no, because there's zero mystery as to who that killer is. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think Psycho is more of a giallo than Frenzy, you know? Yeah. And I ran it through your scoring system. It only got like a 29 or something. But <laughs> at least, you you know, you didn't know who the killer was the whole time, you know? Right. And to me, that's a huge element of uh, of what makes a giallo a giallo. It has to be a mystery. You know, the audience can't know who the killer is. Um, your system is based on kind of the tropes and, like you say, staples and standards of the 70s jolly, which mostly came right. out of the Argento vein. And I think that's super cool. You know, because if that's what you're looking for, a Jalo score gives you an idea of how much of that to expect when you watch a given movie, you know. And yep. it doesn't mean that, you know, if it gets a low Jalo score, it's a crap movie. Or if it gets a high Jalo score, it's a good one. You know, I mean, it, it is what it is. And, and you know, I find it kind of useful. And it's, it's also fun because, you know, I've kind of slap together a, a Jalo score card, which I call it, you know, just in, uh, cool. <laughs> and, you know, I printed out a couple copies and when I watch one, I'll sit there and I'll play Chris, you know, as I'm watching this movie <laughs> and I'll check things off and add up the points and Ooh, 67, you know, <laughs> or whatever, at the end of it. Right. <laughs> but it, you know, it kind of enhances my enjoyment of the film. You know, it's kind of like an audience participation thing in a right. not Rocky horror kind of way, you know? Right. And, uh, as far as publishing a book, um, that could be cool. But, you know, in these days, having a book that is just full of, uh, statistics and scores and like data information compiled on paper, it, you know, why not just go to the website? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly why I'm 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 on the fence about it. I think part of it is just the idea of, boy, wouldn't it be cool to say I wrote a book? Well, right? yeah, um, which I could do that anyway. I could just take the site, copy all of the content uh, and the scores, and convert it into some sort of Kindle thing and dump it on Amazon, and there you go. I'm a published author. Well, may, maybe um, if you offered some extra. Uh, content in the book like a more right. uh, detailed review or analysis of the plot more commentary uh, you know something that the book would offer that you can't just find by going to the website that might be useful well I mean that's a good point and I wonder if and I guess the question that first comes to mind is when people go to the jalloscore.com i don't know if they all realize that there's um at least two or three pages worth of you know analysis of the film that i've written mm -hmm. um 
besides just the blurb. And I think that like when you go to the site and now we're, I guess I'm, I'm just doing a how-to guide for the site. <laughs> when you go to the site and you look at the scores, the first one that comes up if you've sorted the scores by the highest score is Deep Red. And if you click on, you know, it just says, you know, it's like a two-sentence thing about, you know, the blurb about the film. But if you click on the title, it goes to the page where I talk about um, why it got – you know, what, what about it is great and why it got the score it got and what were my overall thoughts about it and whether I would recommend it or not. And um, I don't know if everybody knows that that's even there because it's certainly more than just, you know, the site is more than just a list of points that the, that the, that the, that the film, uh, you know, achieved or acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, I did originally think that maybe it would be fun to write, you know, um, a, you know, a, a long detailed, like critical analysis of the film in general and not just, you know, cause it's hard to remember what I was thinking back in 2008 or 2009 when I came up with an idea for the site, the score itself was the main idea. And I'm trying to remember I got the idea from a bunch of different places, but uh, there was a guy who wrote a, a blog and I was looking at it today because it's still online, even though he hasn't contributed to it in a while. And I think it's called the Jalo Files. Mm-hmm. And um, he put together like a little graphic that looks like a checklist. Um, and for each film, he like fills in the check boxes. And I actually found that website about a year or two into me developing my website and I go, Oh my God, this guy's doing the same thing I'm doing. Um, it's a little bit different, but I don't want to make it look like, you know, I ripped him off. Um, anyway, it didn't bother me that much cause I, I put the site out anyway. And I have, I never, I think I tried to contact him through his blog and never heard anything. So, um, but when I was building the site, I said, you know, I could take this particular film and write, you know, I, I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know how to base length in words. That's one of those things that I, I never learned when I was in college. Like I need a thousand word essay. Like I can't tell you how many pages a thousand word essay is, or if that's even a lot of words, but, um, you know, I could write four or five pages, um, going through, you know, basically doing what we're going to do later, um, about the scene by scene with naked you die, but like in a literary way, like in a written way, instead of a discussion way. Like I thought that maybe that I would add that to the website. And then once it took me a week and a half to write one of those for like one film, I said, Oh shit, this is, I'm never going to get this done. Um, So instead I wrote like three or four paragraphs of Okay, so Four Flies on Great Velvet got a 94, and here's a little bit of background on the film, and here's why it got this score, and what do I think of it, you know, if the score is high, is it a good film? If the score is low, do I recommend it anyway? And that's what I ended up doing as far as it being the format of the written part of it. Um, And I've kind of stuck to it, but as I've gotten more interested in Jalo films and as I've gotten better at understanding them, um, my analysis 
what that I, you know, the analysis that I write for the website uh, has gotten better and longer. So like, if you go and look at the site now, I wrote a decent amount for a uh, date for a murder and um, <clears throat> the possessed and the embalmer black veil for Lisa. Like those are newer ones that I just wrote within the last um, few months that I think are way better than the ones I put out in the very beginning when I first did the website. So, um, but yeah, I think that you have a good point. I guess the only difference is would people spend money to buy a Jalo score book, a digital Jalo score book, or would it be something that somebody would notice in the publishing world and say, Hey, let's turn this into, you know, a real book that we can sell, you know, um, like there's potential there, I guess. Um, but uh, I'm still on the fence. Like, I still think that maybe the jaloscore.com is best suited for a digital media that can be easily updated, you know. Well, you're constantly um, adding to it, too. You know, I mean, right. you're not done with it. It's not like, I've, okay, I've scored all the jolly. Here it is, you know. Correct. Um. So... And, you know, I'm looking at your score analysis for Deep Red, and you do have quite a bit written about the film. Um, I mean, enough to be, you know, like a film theory paper, you know, for a class or something. So if you multiply that by know, how many films do you have? 50 on here? Um, or, let me see. 70. 70. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that'd make a pretty good sized book. I think my some of the appeal of the website is you have the the screenshots from the film. Mm-hmm. Putting that on paper and charging money for it could bring up all sorts of rights issues with the different studios, where they yes. don't care so much that it's on a website. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and I think that you know there are a couple of guys in in our little circle. Um, who have done this before, who probably would be able to advise me in that particular case. Like, you know, yeah, if you want to put a screenshot from Deep Red into your book, it's going to cost you this much money. Or, no, you can go and get these because these have been designated as royalty-free or whatever right. and use them, and that's fine. Um, so that that's an interesting point, too. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I When I put the website back out, I said there's no way that I would do a book or to try to turn it into a book unless I had close to 200 or maybe like 150. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a sizable amount. And I'm nowhere near that number at 70. So the, 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 the long story long is that, you know, I'm going to continue to add information to this website as it being the central source of information. But the other thing that, you know, I really like about this and you mentioned it um, a little while ago is that, Initially, the concept for the Jalo score was, hey, let's turn this into like a little bit of a geeky thing where we assign points to it. But what you experienced in doing it for yourself is the same thing that I went through, which is it's a little bit more fun to watch a Jalo when you're paying attention to the score. It's kind of like playing fantasy football and watching a team that you wouldn't normally watch but you've got players on your team that are playing. So you're interested. Right. It's like, it's like, a, it's like almost like it's a drinking game. Like a, it's a party game. Like we're going to, 
Although I was <laughs> I was thinking about this just a few seconds ago about what what the Jalo score would be like if it was turned into a drinking game and um it wouldn't be fun because you would drink a lot in the very beginning because some of the things would be established right away and then there would be a, a long amount of time <laughs> where there wouldn't be anything to drink and then every once in a while you'd be like oh I see a set of spiral stairs let me take a sip right. <laughs> um but it it really wouldn't be a good it's not like when you play that, you know, there was the drinking game when I was growing up. You, you opened a beer and you listened to the song Roxanne. And every time they said Roxanne, you took a sip. Um, oh, geez. I never heard that one. That would that would that would that would definitely um, get you hammered a lot faster. Um, I know for a fact that. Well, I mean, I remember that when I first started getting into Jolly Chow Chow and hearing about you and the Jolly score, you know, I, I did the same thing. I printed out a scorecard and I was watching a lot of these films with my wife and we would go pick up, you know, at the grocery store, a bottle of J and B and, you know, we'd hang out <laughs> in our bedroom and put a Jolly on the TV. And, um, every time I got to check something off, you know, swig. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and by the end of the movie, you know, the ending made perfect sense. Sure, no plot holes <laughs> exactly. whatsoever. Oh, great. Yeah, that was airtight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's good, though. I mean, and you know, you've given me... Uh, you've given me an idea, which I will fully credit you for. Maybe I'll add a... Print out your own... <laughs> You know, here's here's a print here's a printable version of the Jalo criteria that you can use okay. for your own scores. You know, you know, last week when I was going through uh, trying to set up some sort of scorecard on, uh, I guess it was Windows, you know, like Word Docs or something. I was trying to insert the tables and then carry the criteria and the point values over into the little tables and then try to make it where you could do more than one film per page. I was thinking, why the right. hell doesn't he have this on his website already? <laughs> there ought to be like a PDF you can just download and print. But Yeah, and I probably pro- I, I should probably put it like right on the homepage because people would go there and it'll be like, you know, print out your own scorecard. Yeah. Um, and and that brings us to another topic really quickly. Okay. It's that the criteria itself is not set in stone. And the more I watch films, the more I change it up a little bit. Now, mm-hmm. to be honest, and, and I'm going to go back to a, a major criticism. I don't know if it was major. A criticism that Matt would always bring up, which is, Dude, you watched like three Argento movies and then made the score out of that. And uh, and whenever he would bring that up, I would get defensive and then I would think about it and go, well, he's kind of right. And I think that I'm partially justified in saying that Bird, if you do a combination of the staples that come from Girl Who Knew Too Much, Blood and Black Lace and Bird, it's pretty much the whole the majority of what I turned into a criteria um, and kind of rightly so, but also I do think that I watched a bunch of Sergio Martino and some Fulci and some Lenzi, uh, to kind of round it out a little bit. I think we all agree that Argento is the person who, um, and Bava are the two people who made Jalo kind of, I don't want to call it a household word because, <laughs> um, it's a very small group of people who are into it, but I mean, they're into it because of those two people, um, at least I think so. 
Um, well, regarding that, you know, I would say the first real identifiable seed of a Jalo was Blood and Black Lace. Um, but after Blood and Black Lace, it wasn't like all the Italian directors were falling all over themselves to imitate it and basically lift right. the staples and standards and tropes of that film and, you know, repurpose them for their own movies. And I'm not sure how internationally successful financially it was. But with uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, that got everybody's attention, meaning everybody who's right. a director in Italy and you know, other yes. parts of Europe too. That got their attention because it was successful in international markets. And it's undeniable. I mean, just look at your, your website. Films that came out after that recycled so many elements of the Dario Argento animal trilogy and specifically you know starting with bird that right. how can you not say that that's not a good starting point or something to base the criteria for your score on you know? right well thank you i i think it's partly because matt um has this love-hate relationship with argento um his his critique and it's not necessarily unwarranted or unfounded is that you know, Argento was given opportunities to make movies because he had influential people in the family. That's true. And he came to the idea of make, you know, so that's, so that's Matt's main criticism. He wouldn't be where, you know, he wouldn't be as popular if he didn't have, you know, a rich family to back him up. And then his second, his second critique is that Argento came up with a formula for Bird and then just kind of, did it over and over and over again. Like the whole idea of within the first 10 minutes of bird, there's this scene that happens and it establishes everything that's going to be um, re returned to for the next, you know, 90 minutes. And then there's going to be a big aha moment where the character realizes that, you know, it, it, his mind got the better of him and what he saw was something different than what he thought he saw. Right. And that's what comes down to figuring out the puzzle. Um, well, I mean, if he was the first person to do that, you know, you're going to blame him because he, you know, struck up on a successful formula and then repeated it. And come on. So what? It's not like he stole that idea from somebody <laughs> else. Yeah, it's a little boring if you do it every single time, you know, like right. Shyamalan or somebody, you know, every <laughs> But, you know, it, it had an impact when it came out. And even The Sixth Sense created a wave or you know ripples of influence within hollywood all of a sudden everybody rediscovered somehow the the, the twist ending oh my god you yeah know, but then you know that's what he did so he kept doing it and you know just because right. dario argento came from privilege you know his dad was a producer or whatever and he got you know he cut straight to the front of the line or came to directing your own movie if the movie was crap, we wouldn't be talking about it now, you know. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yes, and I and I think that uh, I think that Matt never um, said a, a negative thing about Argento's eye for being able to create a strikingly beautiful, well-paced, well-edited film. I mean, for the most part, um, and I also know that uh, Matt has a tendency to. 
exaggerate his <laughs> distaste for Argento because he knows it gets under my skin a little bit. Oh, it's entertaining it's, to it's, listen to too. It's <laughs> right. It's it's fun. It's fun to it's fun to talk about it that right. way. So, um, but you know, I, I, so I I think that. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing to get back to my original point, which was um, that the criteria is changing as I continue to watch. Mostly uh, it's in the signatures that I just I start adding more signatures. Like, for example, um, we watched a bunch of movies where there is somebody in a position of being a peeping Tom. And Matt was like, dude, well, you need to add that as a point. So I did. Okay. Um, and more recently, I'm, I noticed that people are running around on the roof a lot in Jalo films. Okay. And so that's got to be one. So you see people running around on the roof, um, you know, give it a point. Um, the other one that I, that I love, my, fa- my favorite new criteria point is hippies dancing. And that's partially because I've been watching a lot of proto Jolly and they love to do this at some point in the movie. They go to like a swinging like 60s, late 60s club where there's this it's either like funky kind of dance music or it's like acid rock, mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic acid rock. And uh, everybody's just dancing around and being weird and having these weird outfits. Um, so if I see that in a film, I give it a point. now. OK, so do they have to be specifically hippies or just any? Well, no, it's. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a couple of Lindsay films where they go to a disco or they go to a club and they're dancing, and they're not they're not dressed like dirty, you know, homeless hippies that like Woodstock refugees, they, <laughs> right? Like this, you know, they decided they were going to drop out of everything and do acid and live on the street and um, okay. wear a lot of denim and stuff like not that kind of a hippie, but anybody that's got that kind of groovy shagadelic look to them. Okay. So how about um, Edwige Fenech at the beginning of five dolls for an August moon Would that count? Oh, that's a good one. Cause it's not, no, I wouldn't count it because it's a private party. Okay. And there's only about seven or eight people. Okay. This has to be a club setting. Okay. Like, and maybe I need to just change what I've named it from hippies dancing to, you know, groovy club dancing or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, but that's a good, that's a good point. The Edwidge scene in five dolls, I wouldn't give the point to, but that's the beauty of being able to print out your own Jalo score criteria card. You might give hippies dancing a point in uh, five dolls and then send me an email and say, Hey Chris, you need to change the score. And I wouldn't be able to do that if it was a book. So oh, that's true. Now too. we're back to the yeah. whole, the whole point of the discussion. In the first. Well, place, I mean, but, what you're doing um, is you're taking a scientific approach to art, right? So yes, any kind right. of science, as we've learned from Dr. Fauci, uh, changes as new information comes in. You know. Now you know. Look, half of America did not learn that because they didn't believe that. Well, half of America can go back to watching Adam Sandler and leave the jolly for the rest of us, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
So that's where we are with Jalo score. I thought of a few more things and I wrote some, I wrote them down um, as far as new criteria. Um, but I'll kind of revisit that, you know, in later episodes because I, I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. uh, they were interesting as I was watching the proto Jolly. And this may be a good segue into the film we're going to talk about. As I got back into Jalo this past summer, I said, I, I like to, I guess, put weird limitations on myself or put weird um, criteria on my own behavior. And I said, I'm not going to watch any more of the classic Jalo until I've made it through all the most important films that came before Bird. Like, I'm dying to watch Bird because I haven't watched Bird in at least three or four years. Um and I'm dying to watch Solange if, for the same reasons. But I've like forced myself to commit to watching everything that came after Blood and Black Lace before Bird. Not everything, obviously, because that's going to take forever. But I mean, the ones that if you cross-reference them with three or four or five different sources fall on everybody's list as uh, a proto-Jalo type film. Right. So um, that's what I've been focus on la- focusing on on lately and um i'm not sure why i necessarily brought that up other than the fact that we were talking about hippies dancing (laughs) and that happens a lot in uh the proto jolly um but yeah as i was watching them over the last few months i noticed some other um aspects of the of the pre-bird films because i'm going to stop saying proto jolly over and over again uh the pre-bird films that um that really kind of still established a few things like one of them. And I think we were talking about this last time. One of them is the main character is either seeing something that's supernatural or they're going crazy or someone is doing something to make them think that either the first two things are happening. Um, And that happens a lot in like the Umberto Lenzi films where Carol Baker you know, maybe she took way too many tranquilizers and drunk, drank too much uh, scotch. And now she's seeing double, but she's seeing somebody who was killed already and he's he's alive again, you know. Um, or uh, th- this happens in a bunch of these films uh, where, you know, I hate to say this, but in most cases it's the female who's going through this. Um, because at the time I think, you know, people just assumed that if you're a female, you're more susceptible to um, gaslighting or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever we're talking about. Um, but I think in one of them, the the male uh, character is the one who suffers from this. But oh, in um, in uh, libido, I don't know if you ever saw libido. Um, no, I haven't watched that one yet. OK, so that's uh, Ernesto Gastaldi, his one and only directorial film. OK, Um the main character witnesses this um, traumatic event as a child, Argento, right? Uh-huh. Um, and um, now he's an adult and he's not sure if this traumatic event is re- he's reliving it in his head and it's and it's and it's coaching him or coercing him to commit murder um, or if someone's trying to drive him crazy by recreating the event. You know, um, and it's a really awesome giallo. It's probably the most important 
Jalo besides the two that Bava did before um, before Bird. Um, because, you know, we Ernesto Gastaldi, he wrote the screenplay for so many of the classic Jolly. Um, but this was the film that he made and it was like a low budget deal. But anyway, that was a that was one where the male character was in a position where they didn't know what to believe. But anyway, as I'm watching this, that's like as I'm watching these films, I'm going, you know, these um, criteria were developed out in the proto period and they didn't necessarily show up as uh, frequently in the classic period, as you would see, like, you know, the, the killers on the loose with the gleaming blade and, you know, the, the black gloves and a lot of the other stuff we've come to know from the Argento years. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but they're still there a little bit from time to time. So I've been constantly, not constantly. So I've been, uh, regularly thinking about how the films from the proto period need to be more represented in the score on the Jalo score website. I guess that was my ultimate point, but um, it's a really um, just, just to get myself to a point where I stop talking. Um, it's really um, an unsung kind of period of time if you're into Jalo, that it is worth taking the time to, to go back and, and watch, I think. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, you know, last time we spoke, you asked me if I'd seen a lot of uh, the proto-Jali, and I said no. You know, uh, Actually, make a correction in case this ends up coming out. I said I hadn't watched many Jolly, even proto-Jali. I didn't mean I haven't watched too many Jolly, because, you know, I have. What I meant was one from the 60s. But if you look at the period between uh, Blood and Bird, that's six years. And then you look at the the period after Bird, that takes you up to 76. By then, the Golden Age was already over. Right. So there's like an entire period between Blood and Bird that, you know, what, you're just going to ignore it because it came out you know, in the you know, the gray zone between blood and bird and watching right. this film that we're going to discuss tonight. Yeah. Okay. It might not score very high, you know, on the Argento scale, but it's definitely worth right. watching. It's, you know, it's probably not one of my top 10, but it's got some good stuff in it. And if you look at that period as kind of like the, the experimenting, the mutating, because I think they all have a lot of roots in the Bava films, but they're branching mm. off in different directions, you know? And then by the time 70 came around, somebody kind of just lassoed or lassoed the best parts of the different branches and, you know, crystallized them into bird. And that, you know, exploded the, the golden age. It's yeah. worth looking at, you know? I mean, you can't be a Led Zeppelin fan and say, oh, well, they mentioned Robert Johnson, so I'm going to listen to Robert Johnson, but screw Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? That's a great point. Absolutely. So. I like that. Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's, it's a good point. And, And I think maybe what's a little bit more challenging, at least for me, about the proto period is that it is a little bit kind of all over the place. 
um, because specifically because the Argento effect hadn't happened yet. Right. Right. So, um, you know, you'll you'll have a film that falls into this category, but it's more of a spy espionage film. Or you might have one that's this gothic, you know, castle, dark, you know, brooding suspense kind of thing that basically, okay, it's taking its influence from, you know, the Hammer um, horror films, the gothic horror films, and maybe the German creamy films. Um, It just seemed like during that period from 63 to 70, the directors in this little bucket were kind of throwing everything at the wall and uh, just to see what may might end up being successful to see what would stick. And uh, it's kind of fun actually, Mm -hmm. but I, I think that it's not fun for people who haven't watched the classics. You know what I mean? Like you kind of really can't appreciate um, naked. You die. um, If this is the first Jalo you were ever exposed to like let's just say you know you've watched a bunch of american slashers and horror films and somebody says hey you should check out a giallo let's give them naked you die i think you would hate the genre if that was the first film you ever saw and maybe yeah um but for me watching it i freaking love this film i've gone through it like three or four times now and it's watch it's rewatchable it's fun um and I think I appreciate it a lot more because I know how to appreciate it for its time, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah, in context. You know? Yep. Like, I know what they were going for, and three or four years from this film, you would see kind of like the ultimate, you know, example of this. But um, it's still very entertaining, and I think that somebody who may have, you know, like... A lot of the criticism for this particular film is that there's not a lot of nudity, despite the title, and there's not a lot of, like, on-screen violence, despite the title. Um, And, you know, I I think that's just indicative of what we were talking about before with the Americans who see a title and go, I got to watch this, and then they get to the end and go, nobody was naked and there weren't any deaths, so... I was disappointed. <laughs> right. The the deaths leave a little to be desired in this one. They do. Yeah, absolutely. But as somebody watching it for where is the genre headed in 1968, I loved it. I loved every like frame of it. I, you know, but I, it may also be the brandy talking. So who knows? Anyway, um, we are going to talk about a film now (laughs) uh, (laughs) called Naked You Die. Seems to be like 
was released in 1968 it was directed by antonio am i saying this right margariti exactly yeah okay um director and screenwriter but we'll get into a little bit about that in a second mm-hmm. um the stars of the film uh i mean i i don't know a, you know italian uh actor and actress history that well but it seems like a mostly unknown cast um, well, I have a note about that. Okay, throw it out there. Let's hear it. Uh, the girl who plays, uh, what's her name? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Uh, <laughs> Lucille. Okay. Uh, the redhead, I guess. Yep. That actress, Eleonora Brown, at the time of this filming, she was, uh, I think, 20 years old. But okay. her career started in 1960 when she was 12 years old in a wow. film by Vittorio De Sica called, uh, the English title is Two Women, which starred uh, Sophia Loren. Wow. Okay. And uh, Vittorio De Sica was kind of like the, the John Ford of Italian cinema. He was very instrumental in the post-war neorealism movement that came along. And uh, he was the director of uh, The Bicycle Thief. Have you heard of that? Mm, it sounds familiar, but I don't think I've seen it. Okay. Well, it was It's kind of like the Citizen Kane of Italian neorealism. And okay. neorealism was a movement that... Uh, sought to kind of downplay the Hollywood, well, okay, the Italian version of Hollywood happy endings and great stories and uh, look more at the realistic life of Italians in the post-war era when things were bleak and not so great for everybody. Um, So they did a lot of shooting outdoors and using, uh, instead of like Hollywood stage sets, well, okay, studio stage sets i'll say they would shoot on Hmm. on location with people who look like people that you would see every day instead of you know dressed up doll but people um his film two women was about a mother and her daughter trying to uh make their way out of a large city to someplace safe during the war and it's very bleak and it's very dark and Eleonora, at 12 years old, played Sophia Loren's daughter. Okay. And in that film, her character had a very bad time in that film. Uh, along the lines of, have you seen The Accused with Jodie Foster? Sure. Okay. okay she, I, I know it. Okay. I know she it. had a very bad time, kind of like Jodie Foster had a very bad time in that film. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And it, it strikes me as kind of funny that that was her very first film. This film, Naked You Die, that she shot when she was 20, was the last film that she did for 50 years. Wow. 
and I'll, I'll get to why I think that is uh, a little bit later when we get to uh, that relevant scene but she- well that's yeah okay. that's that's insanely interesting and um you know in watching the film I noticed that she kind of stands out as um the most kind of natural actor mm-hmm. type in the film. Like there are scenes where she's in, you know, she's sitting in that four poster bed and she's scared um, because she's in the situation with Richard and all this other stuff that's going on in the film. And she looks genuinely afraid. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, clearly, you know, I need to do a little bit more research on her because she looks like she, you know, was a successful, successful actress and knowing that she was in this film and knowing what the film was about, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting that she doesn't have that many credits. Cause so when, when I, when I introduce a film and say that the cast is mostly unknown, it's because I've looked them up in IMDb to see how many things they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's important for me to kind of, disclaim that when I talk about either an actor or a director or a film score composer being known or unknown, it's specific to Jalo that I mean that, right. you know? Um, so for example, like the guy who did the music, Carlo Savina, um, I looked him up and he's extremely prolific. Like he's done music for all kinds of films, but they're all, none of them, um, show up in the list of Jalo films that I'm normally looking for. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that he's very prolific as a, a film composer, and I think he he shows up as in part of the music department for something like The Godfather or some like important important films. Not important, but like widely popular. Um I don't consider him to be somebody that I would put on the Jalo score simply because I don't see any other Jolly <laughs> titles next to his name. So not like Morricone or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but uh, I- I'm glad you brought that up about uh, e- Eleonora Brown, because one of the things that I'm trying to understand more about is like, so if we're talking about mid 70 or, you know, if we're talking about the Jolly from 70 to 75, um, we kind of know if you're talking about what are the influences, it's easy for me to relate because I know enough about the movement now. But when you start talking about uh, the proto Jolly, you know, if this is the beginning of a movement for Jalo films, they are obviously influenced by things that came before it. So um, I understand that, excuse me, I understand that the Hammer, Horror, and Hitchcock and film noir and um, the creamy films are all important influences for the proto Jolly. But one of the things that I don't know enough about is this neorealism thing that you're talking about. Like I know that uh, Fellini and Antonioni mm-hmm. fall into that category of neorealism film directors, but well, I'm also Fellini for a while. I mean, at okay. the beginning of his career and then he went into yeah, fantasy land after that a little bit but and you can help me figure this out okay. because you, you know i often equate 
um, those films or the films from those directors, like the neo the neo realism uh, films, with the French New Wave stuff. And I know that they shouldn't be compared to each other because they're not really the same, right? I mean, like if you're talking about neo realism and the way that you described it as it being, uh, you know, an anti Hollywood bleak, you know, realistic portrayal of life. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily what French New Wave was about, right? I haven't really seen a whole lot of French New Wave films. Uh, that's one of my blind spots in, uh, okay. in international cinema. From what I've gathered from different documentaries here and there and uh, just reading things, that was more um, kind of stylized and directed towards the youth and being into the modern sensibilities of the 60s and the filmmakers trying to break uh, compositional and visual uh, guide conventions that were established by previous uh, generations of filmmakers okay uh, the the point i think of neo italian neorealism was that we're not going to make films where everybody's wearing costumes and everybody's done up nicely and representing you with an idealized version of the world that everybody should aspire to we think that's boring and our country has just been through a lot in the last uh, you know the Second World War, and right. this is where we are now, and it's almost documentary by comparison to, uh, you know, like the Hollywood musicals that they were making at the same time in the forties yes. and fifties. Okay. You know, um, I compare Vittorio De Sica to John Ford because John Ford directed The Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda which uh, was a classic, you know, at the time. And it talks about these migrant workers during the Great Depression going from one uh, farm to another, and they're in like a covered wagon, and they're so poor, and their life sucks, and oh, don't you feel sorry for them. But the film itself was shot with uh, like studio sets, you know? Right. So if you take that impulse to show the the struggles of the downtrodden everyday citizen and actually take them off of the studio set and put them outside on a street that is still bombed out from you know the germans or the americans fighting the germans and put that on the screen that's what italian neorealism was Mm, okay okay and that's where the whole that's why the bicycle thief is one of the classics uh, because it shows this family that could be anybody. You know, if you're an Italian person watching this film, you identify. You know, it's right. not like I'm watching some duke and duchess dancing in a ballroom and, you know, will they save their castle? <laughs> you know? gotcha. it's, it's not like that. Right. It's this guy needs a bicycle so he can get to work so that his family can eat and somebody stole his bicycle. You know, mm, it, it brings okay. it down to. Uh, and that's what two women was uh, by the same director it was these two women well you know this mother and daughter who've lived in the city they had to get out of the city because the city was under attack much like some cities we're hearing about right now and it's about their journey and it's not a happy-go-lucky you know 
Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan story at the end of it, you know? Right. Um, so, well, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I think that, and, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about French new wave because I, I need to think about it a little bit more, but um, I think that this type of filmmaking you can definitely see in these proto giallo films. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just the idea that they did a lot more outdoor sets and outdoor filming. Right. Um, I mean, I obviously, you know, there, there are some bleak jolly, um, and sometimes they're bleak because of the, of the kind of the narrative content, not necessarily the locations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember, you know, there are some some Jalo films that are like, you know, the the places. I I realize that a lot of a lot of the Jolly, at least the ones from the classic period, are all about you know um, the jet set and the people with all this money and hanging out and going and drinking scotch and changing their outfits sixteen times in in a, in a single day. Right. But there are a lot of. Um, it just feels like at least a little bit of that neorealism influence can be seen in these films, these Jalo films. Yeah, I think there's a, probably a good example of that would be Don't Torture a Duckling. Because mm. they're showing that village, and except yeah. for Barbara Boucher's character, which is the exception to everybody else in that village, yes, the people in that film are just, you know every day down to earth or salt of the earth as some might say yeah uh people living in a a very glamorous part of the country you know yeah no that's a that's a great example i'm glad you thought of that because i was never going to get there um but i i as soon as you said it i'm like oh yeah of course that makes sense um okay so (laughs) that's the that's the cast and i don't know too much about mark Damon, uh, who plays Richard, but he, I don't know if he's an American actor or, um, he, he seems more, he seems a little less Italian than the rest of the cast. Let's put it that way. I don't know. Um, he's got a lot of other credits where the names of the films are in English. Okay. So he was born in Chicago. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) And God bless the apparently internet. he's still alive and he's been in, uh, he quit acting to become a producer. Okay. As they do. Right. Um, okay. And then um, the only other person that I recognize in the film as being a giallo sort of regular is Luciano Pigozzi, mm-hmm. who plays um, La Florette. And I don't know if I'm, pronouncing the names of these teachers correctly because I just read the subtitles and I didn't really listen to the dialogue because I, I can't understand Italian or is it La Flore? Uh, I would assume it's kind of French. So I would say La Flore. Flore. Flore okay. Um, so he plays the, he's basically the caretaker of the school that the girls are in, in this movie, mm-hmm. but he's been in like hatchet for the honeymoon. He was in, all the colors of the dark, uh, the case of the bloody iris, um, and the other film that Margariti uh, directed is Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which I think we covered on the Jalo score at some, mm-hmm. or at, on the Chow Chow podcast at some point. But I remember it being a film about uh, like a, a classic Jalo period film, but was more gothic. And there was somebody in a gorilla suit at one point in that film. <laughs> um, okay. I and I, I don't remember. I don't remember much more about it. And it's, but that's Margariti's other uh, Giallo. And I think Luciano Pigozzi was in. Um, I think he was in Libido. I thought he was, you know, Libido. He again, was in Libido. Returning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, so the, I read up on that film and I saw on the uh, Cinema Italiano database, which is like the Italian IMDb. Uh, mm. His role in libido, according to that website, was his most rewarding role that he had done in his career. Because I think in most of the other films, he was kind of like just a side character, you know, like he is in this. Yeah, film. I was going to say. Yep. Yeah, you're but right. I think uh, for him, his role in libido was like him really getting to stretch his wings and show his stuff as an actor. Yeah. So and he's really good in that, and that's why uh, that's why I was thinking of it because you know libido. There's really only f- four actors in the whole film, right? Um, so since he's in it, he has a decent major role. But like you said, there's all these other films. He's kind of like you know the side guy or mm-hmm. you know the, the some some sort of um, secondary character, right? Um, so we talked about Carlos Savina a little bit already. Um, the, one of the other things I looked up was the locations where they filmed. Now, the um, the I don't know if I got this right or not, and you can tell me if I'm right or not. It says that the interiors were filmed in Lazio, um, and the exteriors were near Rome. But there was one exterior that was actually in the south of France, like the French Riviera. So... Right. Well, Lazio is the region that contains Rome. Okay. So over here, oh, okay. regions gotcha. are like states. Okay. Okay. So that's like saying uh, parts of it were filmed in, uh, I don't know, uh, Kentucky, but that was filmed in Frankfurt. You know, I mean, it's all Kentucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Uh, okay. Gotcha. So yep. when they say Lazio, right. I assume they mean areas around you know, in the uh, periphery of Rome. Okay. Uh, as far as the French Riviera, I I don't know. I didn't see anything that screamed French Riviera as opposed to Italian Riviera. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I tried to look it up. I tried to Google map it uh-huh. um, because IMDb has a specific spot in the film. You know, so, so you know, the, the film... 90% of the film takes place in one location, right. but in order to get to the college uh, where these girls live, they had to travel from the introduction scene, which is just one of my favorite. The opening scene in this film is just so, <laughs> so fun and so awesome and so much fun. Um, but they, but eventually the teachers all get together and they travel uh, to get to the college and there's these big exterior shots mm-hmm. and it says in IMDB that the scene where they drive the car through the gate and then they close the gate and it says St. Hilda College mm-hmm. 
that that was in that was the part that was in France. So I don't know. Like I tried to I tried to do Street View to see if I could find the same gate, but I couldn't find it. So well, see, I don't um, know if there was really a Saint Hilda College in France. I mean, if you're shooting no, a movie, probably. how hard is it to slip somebody some cash and say, "Look, we're going to change that sign just for like five right. minutes to shoot this shot, and then we'll." Oh, exactly, exactly. But I wonder why you would decide to specifically go all the way to the south of France for that one particular shot. And I, and and if anybody wants to look it up, it's just the scene where. You know, they're basically driving in this cab and um, the two teachers are in the back and they're introducing all the rest of the characters. Mm-hmm. And then there's these big wide shots of a coastal town and they're driving up a switchback. And eventually they come to a place in Italy. Could, just right. as easily. OK. So. And that's that, that's important to know. Like it's, you know, sometimes you see like that, that very specific picture of like Mallorca in some of these Jalo films and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that looks the same. Every time you see it, it looks the same because it's the same place. But I think, you know, your point is that there are a lot of places in Italy and France with a, with coastal towns, with switchback roads that, you know, lead up to lead up a hill. Oh, there's a switchback so. road going up a mountain, like to two kilometers from where I am right now. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a big deal. Uh, I wonder if, it seemed to me that in the film they're trying to make it look like it was someplace not Italy because the the students kind of get excited about the fact that one of the teachers is Italian. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this must not be in Italy because why would that be exciting? But then other elements of the film, oh, yeah, one of the plot true. points is that Lucille is 17. And right. she's kind of doing something with somebody who should not be doing something with the 17 year old. So maybe kind right. of just to make it look like, oh, this is, oh, they definitely do this in France, but not here. In Italy. <laughs> 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 That's a good point. I never even thought of that. Yeah. The, the, the uh, things were, people are more tolerant of that, of that age of consent in, in, uh, in France. I maybe. guess. Maybe. I don't know. I, um, I don't want to say anything is, bad about the idea, French, but yeah on the record uh as far as it being released it was released in italy in early of 68 and in the usa not much long after august of 1968 and then eventually uh west germany at the end of the year Before we get into the scene by scene, there's um, one more piece of interesting information that we should talk about, which is Mario Mario Bava's connection with the film. Right. Now, I don't know what notes you have. Um, There is a tome. I don't even want to call it a book. It's a tome uh, written by Tim Lucas, who was... Uh, originally, I remember him being the guy who wrote a column called Video Watchdog for Fangoria um, ages ago in the 80s. But he wrote this gigantic book about Mario Bava called All the Colors of the Dark. Mm-hmm. And every discussion that I have, or not discussion, but everything that I've read about this film and Mario Bava's 
involvement in it relates back to quotes from Tim Lucas's book. So I think he's the last and final word on Mario Bava. Um, and I'd love to find that book. It's so out of print. It's insane. It's like if you find it anywhere, they'll charge you a thousand bucks for it. Wow. Um, but um, from what I understand from reading a bunch of different articles, including Wikipedia, is that the film was originally offered to Mario Bava to direct and then work with two other people who were going to write the screenplay. And then the source, uh, according to Tim Lucas's book, Lamberto Bava, who is Mario Bava's son, is quoted as saying that Bava had an argument with the producers and quit the film. Um, and so they found Margariti. And when he took over, the screenplay was completely written. The locations were set and scouted out. The, the cast and the crew were hired. And they even had recorded the Nightmare theme song um, when he took over. And when you look at the credits for the film, Margariti gets all the credit for directing and for writing the screenplay. Um, and Mario Bava's not in there anywhere. So um, that's really interesting, especially when you watch the film and realize um, how much Bava influence this film has. Okay. What, I, what, how do you feel about that, Al? Do you, do you think that there's a Bava influence? I mean, did you, did you learn anything about the film that from the Bava connection that, that I didn't mention already? Well, it's hard for me to identify a Bava element unless it involves, you know, strangely colored lights in weird places. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I mean, that's specifically what it is for me. When I watch Naked You Die and, uh, you know, I, I'm going to jump ahead, but there are there are a bunch of scenes that really remind me of Blood and Black Lace and of Mario Bava. I mean, we could talk about huh. the fact that. There's a bre there's a bathtub murder in the very beginning right. that's very much like the one in Blood and Black Lace, but I'm also thinking about like the scenes um, in the basement where they bring the the big trunk with the body into the basement. Mm -hmm. The way that that the way that those visuals are appointed and the way that the sets are set up, um, the way that things are framed. It just it, it's got that Bava look to it. Like Bava was really about putting stuff in the foreground, putting stuff in the middle ground, like maybe that's where the characters are, and then having some stuff in the background that's also interesting to look at. And Bava's certain scenes in Bava films just have that 3D look to them. Um, I don't know if it's partly because he used a really wide angle lens in certain places. Uh -huh. um, but if you look at blood and black lace and if not so not so much girl who knew too much but there's there's definitely a, a thing there and i'm not really familiar with bava's i'm not super familiar with bava's non giallo type stuff like um uh danger diabolic is a, obviously his big claim to fame which i've never seen <laughs> if i'm a bava fan i should really watch that um and like Baron Blood and um, Black Sunday, um, there was something that he was doing specifically in these Jalo films and Hatchet for a Honeymoon and uh, Baron Blood. I I remember where it's it's got this look to it 
and in Naked You Die, if the the, the cellar scene, um, the scene where they are outside looking for, I forget which character it is, um, Betty Ann, right, uh-huh. and they're you know they're combing the outside, and you know the one teacher's out there, and the other guy's out there, and the way that the camera moves during those scenes, and like the the bug house, and it just it's got such a bava look to it. Um, that it's it's hard to it's hard it's hard not to notice it. And and when I read that Bava was um, involved in the production to a certain extent, um, it it just made sense to me. I'm like, oh, okay, now I know why this film looks the way it does, or this film feels the way it does. So okay, but I mean, if they're saying that Bava had written the script and had a lot to do with the story elements, I mean that's one thing. But Margariti shot it. You could say he shot it in a Bava style, you right? Know? I mean that kind of goes back to uh, you know how much detail pertaining to exactly how it was shot was Bava supposed to have put in the script, you right? Know? Yeah, that's a good point. Now, how 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 detailed is the instruction within the script, the shooting script, to the way the film's supposed to look? Right. You know, because you know, if Bava writes a script, Margariti could have said, "You know, screw that. I want to shoot this like a Woody Allen movie," and <laughs> that would have squashed it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good point. You a lot of people walking down the sidewalk bitching about life in general for ten minutes and. No, that's not Bava. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I mean, I you know, I'm I'm learning about this all from you know people translating what really happened into storytelling, and who knows what really happened. Uh-huh. So, um, well, somewhere looking know, up stuff about Antonio Margheriti, I came across the fact that he was nicknamed the Roger Corman of the Tiber meaning the the Roger Corman of Rome. And that refers to, uh, and this is a quote from whichever source I got it from, I I didn't think to note it, but uh, being known for his sometimes derivative but often stylish and entertaining science fiction, sword and sandal, horror, giallo, euro spy, spaghetti western, war and action movies that were released to a wide international audience. So, he kind of had that schlocky sheen to him and was okay. known to kind of just imitate other things that were successful at the time, I would say. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So if there was like the idea of like, it sounds like he was a jack of all trades from a director standpoint. Like, right. Yeah. Well, and you know, that brings up a good point because um, that I wanted to, you know, not related to this specific film, but I watched um, recently. I watched the Sweet Body of Deborah, and I watched um, So Sweet, So Perverse. So Sweet Body of Deborah has a a director attached to it that is not a name that pops out mm-hmm. because uh, you know in in Jalo circles. But So Sweet, So Perverse is an Umberto Lenzi film, and there are a few things that both of those films share as uh, with regard to the way they were made and you know the narrative content and it makes me wonder if the producer cuz 
Both of those films had the same screenwriter and same producer, two different directors. So it makes me wonder, and you know, I, 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 I love hearing Matt's um, take on this kind of stuff because he's, he works in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me wonder if, at this particular time period, the director didn't have that much of a say in the way that the film looked or the narrative of the film. So, you know, uh, you take those two films and look at how similar they are, and then you can say, well, what do they have in common? Well, they have the same producer, which is uh, Sergio Martino's father. I forget what his first name is. Um, and Ernesto Gastaldi worked on the screenplay. Um Lindsay directed one and somebody else directed a different one. So, you know, the question is, you know, did the style of the film and the narrative aspects of the film have more to do with the screenwriter and the producer as opposed to, you know, the director is already looking at a shooting script. He's got his director of photography. He's got his cinematographer or whatever you want to call him. And, you know, he's just running the show. Like how much... We, we, I don't really know the answer to this. It's a, it, it may be a rhetorical question, but um, well, I, I think it's a direct- very hard question to answer because you know, like you said, if Ernesto Castaldi has his own fingerprints that are detectable in his scripts, right? Does that mean that if one director shoots one of his films and another director shoots another of his films, that they're stealing from each other or they're both interpreting what Gastaldi did yeah and how much of that film is a Gastaldi film as opposed to a Martino film or a Lindsay film you know right right I I don't know absolutely it's, it's especially hard because we're talking about a film industry that's kind of known for ripping off other people (laughs) (laughs) in the first place right (laughs) oh uh the way you ripped off raiders of the lost ark was exactly the same way i ripped it off so you're stealing from me i mean are you kidding that's a good point you're you're talking an industry that coined the term spaghetti western you know so it's like right and I'm not saying <laughs> they're garbage. Point. I mean, Spaghetti Westerns did introduce some new elements that American yes. Westerns were kind of not using. But, you know, when... when no, that that's entirely right. Um, and, and, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, imitation being the form of sincere, most sincere form of flattery, mm-hmm. like we, we wouldn't really have the American movie directors doing the things that they do now, if it wasn't for the fact that the Italian and the other European film directors took what they did, imitated it, but added some stuff. And now the American directors are saying, Hey, let's, you know, Tarantino is a huge example of this. You know, he takes everything from the foreign films, which were basically copying off the American films. So, well, it's it's um, like in the '60s, you know, these kids playing guitar start listening to, you know, and we circle back to the blues again. Right. Uh, most <laughs> American kids in the '60s weren't didn't care about the blues, you know. They were you know, listening to other stuff, and then you get, right. uh, you know, Zeppelin, the Stones, uh, you know, uh, I guess before that, Yardbirds and stuff like that, and they kind of take yeah, what, even the Beatles too, right. 
and then they kind of re-inject the the british version of the blues back into american music and now everybody in america loves the blues again because they saw some british guy play it you know exactly (laughs) and it yeah it's like a continuous cycle you know it's really interesting when i when i was right out of college i worked in a barnes and noble music department Uh and uh the Somebody came to me and said, you know, you know, this is the greatest blues album of all time and showed it to me. And it was John Mayall and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. I'm like, mm. but wait, that doesn't make sense to me. How could the greatest blues album of all time be a bunch of guys from the UK when the blues originated from the United States? But that's a good point. Like it's, you know, it, the influence influences the influence, which, in, you know, in turn comes back to the original and it's and it's happening in these films that we're talking about too so it's yeah there should be a blue score website (laughs) 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 is the musician white or black please please do not give me that idea was it in the classic period (laughs) i have enough to obsess over right now as it is uh no that's great man that sound that sounds like a great idea could probably do that with just about everything too right well i mean i remember matt saying hey why don't you do the whole giallo score thing for creamy you know um because you could probably do it that way you could probably you know is this an agatha christie or an edgar wallace story right. you know and then go from there <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your Jallo pal, Chris, checking in with you. We have reached the one hour and 33 minute mark here at episode nine of the Jallo Chow Chow podcast, where we cover Naked You Die with special guest Al Owens. Now, if you're listening to this at the end of part one, head over to part two for scene by scene analysis, if you are so inclined. And if you're listening to this at the beginning of part two... Stay tuned for scene-by-scene analysis of the film Naked You Die by Antonio Margariti. Thanks, everybody, and ciao, ciao.